Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be focusing our attention this morning on verse 18 through verse 25. Revelation 2, starting in verse 18, down through verse 25. We're in this series, as you see on the screen, that we are calling Seven Letters. And what we are doing is simply going through these letters to these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And we are down to the final few letters, the final few churches. And we're going to be wrapping this up over the next couple of weeks. And then in February, we're going to do a four-week series through the book of Jonah. And so we're going to jump to the Old Testament and a, a, a series that we're going to call God in Pursuit. Um, so I think that'll be really encouraging. But we want to focus our attention these next few weeks on finishing up these letters to these churches. And what we are striving to do in this, as we have said each week, is to both look at this from a corporate standpoint of what is there for a church in this. Because these are written to churches, literal churches, churches that existed at a certain point in time, letters to churches that had things that they were facing and good things that they were doing and challenges that they had and difficulties and weaknesses like every church has. And so from one standpoint, we're looking at this and saying, okay, what is it that God wants us to learn from this? What can we apply to our church? What ways can our church improve? What are some weaknesses in our church that we can kind of together come together and and, and improve upon? But then there's also the understanding that as a church, we will never be what we need to be as a church until we're who we need to be as individuals. And so there's also the very individual application. So as we go through the message again this morning, look at it through those vantage points. What is there for this church that we need to understand? And then what is there for our lives? What, what is it that we need to understand as individuals, that we need to apply to our lives as individuals? And so this morning we are looking at the church at Thyatira. Thyatira. Try saying that ten times fast. It's not easy. I, I, I sometimes do this with Nathan. We'll, we'll have a word. We'll try saying it ten times really fast. And this is one of those hard ones. Don't try it now. But some of you are going to try it later, aren't you? Tommy, you are, aren't you? I know you will. Um, let me give you a little background. This city was located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, which is the city that we looked at last week. And it was on the way to Sardis, which is the church in the city that we will look at next week. So all of these seven churches are in a close proximity. To us, 40 miles is not that far. We sometimes go that far to a restaurant that we like or to a shopping place that we like. But in this culture, in this day and time, 40 miles was a pretty lengthy journey. So it's about 40 miles away from Pergamum, the city that we looked at last week. But this was a flourishing city. It was primarily known for its purple dye. It had a lot of trade that went through this city, and but the purple dye was kind of its trademark. It was what it was known for. You may remember reading in the book of Acts about Lydia, who is the seller of purple. Well, Lydia was from this city. So in this city, this was this, they had developed this purple dye, which was their primary export out of the city. This is how they made money. This is how they had their living. This is, people came here and they worked in this industry. And this was kind of the main thing that this city was known for. In this city, though, there were several different feasts that they had. And these feasts and these ceremonies that took place 
often, and in fact majority of the time, included the worship of false gods. So it was not just a feast and a festival and a ceremony. They just came together just for the, for the fun of it. But it was very closely connected to idol worship. In fact, they had plenty of opportunities for worship of pagan gods, especially Apollo and Zeus were the main two, in their mind, gods that they worshipped. The emperor worship that we've talked about the last two weeks was a little bit of an issue here, but not as much as it was in the previous cities. In the other cities that we've looked at, they had this imperial cult where they were required to fall down and worship the emperor. In this city, in this town, this was not as much of an issue. You'd think 40 miles away, it would kind of spread, but it really didn't spread that much to this church. The city was a church that was... Or the city was where this church was ministering. It was the challenges they were facing. And they had to deal with these ceremonies and these festivals and these idol worships and these sacrifices. This was kind of the culture in which they existed. But there's several things that we can learn from this church and from what Christ says to this church. And with the other ones, there's both positive and negative. And I think it's a reminder that there's no church that has it perfect. Amen. There's no church that has it all together. There's no church that is 100% has everything exactly the way it needs to be. And as we go through these churches, these churches have many, many things that they do well. But then there's also some things that they have to improve upon. If you're taking notes, you'll notice on the back of your bulletin there's an outline. And I encourage you to fill that in as we go through the message this morning. But there's six points, six lessons that we can learn that I think will will help us through this, kind of guide us through our text. Here's number one. As we're looking at this church at Thyatira, we see that Christ commends their growth in good deeds. Christ commends their growth in good deeds. Look at verse 19, if you will. Christ looks at them and he says this, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Notice this last phrase though. Your last works are greater than the first. So it's not just that they had these things that they were doing, but that they were growing in these things. Several specific things are mentioned. Love. This church was known for their love for God and their love for others. This was not just a love that they claimed to have, but this was a love that they demonstrated. This was a love that was proven. This was a love that they were known for. If you were to go out into the community around this church and ask people, what what can you tell me about this church? One of the things that you would have been told is that they demonstrate love. See, it's one thing for us as a church to say that we love the community. It's something else for us to be able to go out into the community and for the community to know we love them because we demonstrate love to them. Do we love God and do we love others? They were known for their faithfulness. They were dependable, reliable, consistent. They, they didn't swerve back and forth. They, they were faithful. You see also service. This was a church that was serving other people. They were not self-focused. They were not selfish. They weren't just focused on how things affected them. But as they were making decisions and as they were trying to understand how they could move their ministry forward, they were focused on how things affected other people. They wanted to serve others. They wanted to minister to other people. And then the last thing that you see is endurance or perseverance. They endured through difficult times. In addition to their faithfulness, they had this endurance and in the face of persecution. Remember, Christians were being put to death. And that is one of the things that would have spread quickly is the knowledge that Christians are being tortured and Christians are being put to death because of their faith. And 
They remained faithful in that. They endured in that. So Christ looks at them and says, listen, you're doing all of these things very, very well. I I commend you for this. Great job in this area. Secondly, though, there's something that Christ is concerned about. Secondly, Christ is concerned with the toleration of sin. Christ is concerned with the toleration of sin. Look at verse 20. Christ looks at them and he says this, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You see that word Jezebel, the person in this church that they are referring to literally probably wasn't named Jezebel, but they are kind of drawing a correlation back to the Old Testament Jezebel who was used to deceive God's people and lead God's people astray and to kind of seduce God's people. It's kind of the idea that that this woman has some of the same characteristics. You may be familiar with the Jezebel of the Old Testament, how she was used against God people. But there's several specific things mentioned in verse in this verse we just read, verse 20, that she was doing. That she had this false doctrine. She taught this this error, this untruth. It's not that if you notice in the verse 20 again, look at it with me. Verse 20 specifically says, I have this against you. Notice what it says. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves, my people, to commit sexual immorality. So there's both this teaching of error and also this seduction. It's kind of this mixture that we've seen the past couple of weeks of idolatry and immorality. And this person had come into the church and was deceiving God's people. But what I want you to notice was that what Christ is addressing is not so much the sin of false teaching. And what Christ is addressing is not so much the sin of immorality. But if you notice in verse 20, Christ's primary concern is with the church's toleration. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 20? He says, I have something against you. But notice what it is that he has against them. Verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. So is the false teaching wrong? Yes. Is the immorality wrong? Yes, absolutely. But what Christ looks at this church and sees is the main problem that he is concerned with and the main thing that he's addressing is that they are tolerating this false teaching and they are tolerating the immorality. He looks at them and says, listen, you have allowed this to creep into your church. You've allowed this to kind of come into your church and you're kind of looking at it. You're not dealing with it. You're tolerating. You're allowing it. So what we have to understand is that sin is serious, but in Christ's eyes, so is tolerating sin. So many times what we do is we sit back and we say, you know what, that sin is wrong. And I have no doubt that if you would have walked into the church in this city and asked them, is that what, what, what this person is teaching wrong, they would have said yes. And if you would have asked them, is this immorality wrong, they would have said yes. But the problem was not that they thought it was wrong, they did. And the problem was not that they were actually teaching this. They weren't teaching this. The problem that Christ had was they allowed it. They tolerated it. They did not deal with it. They, they did not stop it. It's a warning that we have to not just view sin as sin. We have to be careful that we do not in any way tolerate sin. Now, there's certainly this from the corporate level. I mean, if sin creeps into the church and false teaching creeps into the church, we cannot tolerate that. But what I think the application may need to be this morning is more on a personal level. See, when sin creeps into our own lives, what do we do? You know what it's easy to do is to excuse it. 
you know what, we give ourselves far more excuses and we cut ourselves far more slack than we do other people, don't we? Don't we? <laughs> we say, you know what, I had a, I had a bad day today. It's okay. I, I, today was not a good day. So we, we start excusing it. But if somebody else was in that same situation, we wouldn't excuse it. When it comes to us and our attitudes, see, and, and let's just let's broaden it for a second. Let, let, let's not just talk about false teaching and immorality. Let's broaden it to just sin in general. I mean, wrong focuses and wrong priorities and wrong thoughts and wrong actions and wrong reactions and pride and gossip and all these other things, when we recognize those things in our life, our response out of understanding the truth of this verse is we cannot tolerate sin in our own lives. It's one thing to look and say, yeah, you know what, I messed up. But if we truly are serious about that sin, what we will say is, yes, what I did is sin and I cannot tolerate that in my life. It is If we stand up and we say we are not going to tolerate sin in our church, but yet we tolerate it in our lives, we are nothing more than hypocrites. When, when Christ stood before the Pharisees, and this is what they did, they would stand up before crowds and they would call out the sins that they see in other people. But when Christ looked at them, he said, I see the sin in your heart and I see the sin and pride in your own life. And he looked at them and said, you are scribes, Pharisees, and what's that third word he would say? Hypocrites. He says, you'd like to point out the sin everywhere else, but you don't want to deal with the sin in your own life. So understand, Christ is concerned with the toleration of sin, both in the church, but also in our lives. Number three, an encouraging point out of this is even though they had this sin in their church and they were tolerating this sin, number three, Christ gave them time to repent. Look at verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Now in verse 22, the second part of the verse says, unless they repent of her practices. So twice we see that Christ is patient. Christ gives time to repent. In the Old Testament, the writers referred to God as being long-suffering. And it's the idea that God was not easily, that he would not quickly pour out his wrath and pour out his judgment on people who were guilty of sin. But he was patient with them, calling them to repentance, calling them to confess their sin. And again, there's a couple applications here. On one hand, we have believers, and I would assume most of us here are believers in Christ. We've, we've accepted Christ's gift of salvation. We've given him our life. Understand that Christ is patient with you. And when you sin, and when there is sin in your life, Christ, Christ gives time for repentance. And that is wonderfully encouraging because 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess, when we confess, he is faithful and just. And what will he do? He will forgive. What a wonderful truth. I mean, if you were here this morning, and as we're going through the message, sin in your heart and sin in your life is coming up into your mind. And you're being made aware of sin in your life. Understand be encouraged by the fact that God gives time for repentance. But there may be people here this morning who have no relationship with Christ. You, you've never accepted the free gift of salvation. You, you don't know what would happen to you if you were to die this morning. And the encouraging news for you today is that God gives time for repentance. The very fact that you are here this morning means that God is giving an opportunity for repentance. That the salvation is offered, the forgiveness is offered, the cleansing is offered. It means you can confess your sins. You can accept God's gift of salvation. It is offered. God is a patient, long-suffering, gracious, merciful God. And that is encouraging news for every single one of us here this morning. 
There may be some of you here, and you're burdened because you have loved ones in your, in your life that you know do not know Christ as their Savior. You may have neighbors and co-workers that when you think about their eternal destinies, you, you think about the fact that if they were to die today, they would spend an eternity in hell. And when you think about that reality, your heart is heavy. And some of you have shared with me stories and prayer requests of loved ones who do not know Christ. You know what should encourage you this morning? Is that God is giving time for repentance. God is a long-suffering God and a merciful God and a gracious God. And his arms are open wide. I remember one time at a previous church, I was there during the week, like on a Tuesday morning doing something. And Jonathan, or no, I guess it was Nathan. Nathan was... How old was Nathan? And I guess he was about four years old. And I, uh, he was back in the back of the auditorium. And I got down on my knees. He was looking for me. He couldn't see me. And I got down kind of like this. And I opened up my arms. You know what he did? He took off waddling. I, running's probably too much credit. He took off running and just ran into my arms. See, the picture of a long-suffering, gracious, merciful saving God is that God is there with open arms just waiting for us to run to him. So whether you're running to him in need of salvation or whether you are saved and you're running to him confessing sin, understand that God is not a God in heaven with a baseball bat ready to beat you over the head because you've messed up. God is a patient, long-suffering God that has his arms open wide ready to embrace you when you run to him. Now when I do this, Nathan kind of runs the opposite direction. I don't know what's happened. But think about that picture. Christ, God, is a forgiving God. He gives time to repent. He calls people to repentance, but then he gives time to repent. But because of that, you and I also need to call people to repent. We, we need to call people to salvation. We need to let people know that God loves you and he died to his son Christ to die for you. We need to call people to repentance. The other thing I think we need to ask with this point is this. When you are called to repent because of sin in your life, how do you respond? I mean, when you're aware of sin in your heart and sin in your life and the Holy Spirit kind of pricks your heart and you feel that need to repent, do you reject that or do you submit to that? Because we all sin. We all have things in our lives that we need to repent of. We all have failings. We all have moments where we, where we give in to temptation. We all do. So how, when we're aware of that and that call to repentance comes to our mind and that call to repentance comes to our heart and we have that opportunity to repent, how do we respond to that? See, we can reject it or we can submit to it. We can reject it or we can run to the open arms. So I want to challenge you this morning, encourage you this morning. Yes, find comfort in the fact that God is a God who offers forgiveness and God is a God that gives time to repent. But I also want to challenge you, when there is a need to repent, understand that we have a responsibility to submit to that and then to follow through with repentance. See, sometimes we think, well, you know what, this isn't so bad, God will overlook it. But that's why this next point is so important. Number four we need to also understand that Christ punishes sin. Christ punishes sin. Verse 22. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. 
I will kill her children with the plague. Let's pause right there. This is a kind of a figurative picture saying that God takes sin seriously. Do we believe that? I mean, sometimes in our minds and in our lives, we don't see the, the, the immediate consequences of sin. And so we can be tricked into thinking, well, I know sin is sin, but since I don't see the punishment for this sin immediately, maybe it's not really that big of a deal. But we have to understand that sin is a sin against a holy God. And so God takes all sin seriously and all sin must be atoned for. All sin must be punished. See, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, again, there's an encouraging note with this, is that Christ paid for your sin on the cross. Christ died and took the penalty of your sin. But there's also the other side of it. For those who have no relationship with Christ, the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is what? Death. The Bible is very clear about that. Christ punishes sin. And some of you may think, well, God sounds mean. I mean, how could God, why would God punish sin? I mean, God just sounds like a mean God. It's not that God's mean, it's that God is just, and that God is righteous, and that God is holy. But he's also merciful, and that he is giving us, again, the previous point, time to repent. So understand, God is faithful, and God is love, and God is gracious, but God is also righteous, and God is also just. Number five, this is kind of the theme of the message this morning. The main point this morning is that Christ searches minds and hearts. Christ searches minds and hearts. Look at verse 23, middle of the verse. It says, Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. You may see at the top of your outline, the title of the message is the Christ who sees all. And the reason we can say that Christ is the Christ who sees all is because he is the Christ that searches minds and he is the Christ who examines hearts. Christ examines minds. He sees what you were thinking. Is that scary? Some days (laughs) when you're sitting in traffic, maybe Christ sees your thoughts. He sees what you're thinking. He sees what you're imagining. So even those things where we say, well, I didn't follow through with that. Christ sees the backdrop of your thoughts and your imaginations. Christ searches our hearts, meaning he sees our motivations and he sees your priorities. So when Christ looks at you, he just doesn't see your your actions or your reactions. When Christ looks at you, he sees your minds and he sees your hearts. He sees your priorities and your attitudes. He sees what you wish you could do. He sees what you imagine that you were doing, but you're afraid to do because you might get caught. He he sees all of that. He examines. Notice he doesn't just see it, but the passage says that he examines. It's the idea that he goes in and he looks and he examines and he there's nothing that is missed. There's nothing that escapes him. You say, how, how can Christ do this? Well, go back up with me to verse 18. Remember, each of these letters from Christ contains a description of Christ. And the description of Christ in verse 18 is this. He is the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. Okay, so put this together. His eyes are like a fiery flame. And it's the picture that he has this gaze into your heart and into your mind that, that nothing can be hidden. It's, it's this penetrating gaze that, that, come, that, that moves past any facade that we may build. And he sees the reality of your heart. See, we can come in here on Sundays and we can fool everyone. 
And we're good at it. I mean, we can come in and we can make everyone think that we have it all together and we act holy and we act righteous and we act loving and we put the smile on and we carry our Bibles. But when Christ looks at us, he sees the reality. His fiery glaze searches and examines our minds and it searches and examines our hearts. So when we think about that, what is it that he sees in you this morning? As Christ's fiery glaze is examining your heart and is examining your mind this morning, what is it that he sees that no one else here is seeing? What attitude does he see in you this morning? And what priorities is he finding in you this morning? And what thoughts and imaginations is he examining in you this morning? Understand, nothing is hidden from the fiery glaze of Christ. The next part of verse 18 says, And whose feet are like fine bronze. And this is the idea that he has the authority to examine. So it's not just that he is, but that he has the authority to do it. He sees it all. So on one hand, the church. The church may look good in the community and the church members, we may think everything is great, but how does Christ see us? Then individually, how does Christ see you? Christ sees all. He searches minds. He examines minds. He examines hearts. But then number six, to the faithful, Christ calls for faithfulness. To the faithful, Christ calls for faithfulness. Look at verse 24. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you. Then here's the, here's the instruction to, the, to those who have been faithful. But hold on to what you have until I come. So Christ has something to say to those of you this morning who are, who are not guilty. Meaning, you have not been tolerating false teaching either in your own life or in the church. You've not been tolerating immorality in your own life or in the church. You've been striving to be what the beginning of the, this passage says. You're, you're loving and you're faithful and you're enduring, you're, you're serving, you're, you're striving for this. Christ looks to you and says, continue in that. Continue. Hold on to what you have. Remain faithful. So those works that he mentions in verse 19, remain faithful loving others. Remain faithful in your faithfulness. Don't don't get discouraged because you don't see this same faithfulness in other people. Remain faithful in this endurance. Remain faithful in serving other people. Continue in this. Continue growing in this. See, there's times in our lives when what, what God calls us to is not change but steadiness. There's times in our lives when what God expects from us is not to us to do something different, but to cling on to what we know is right. And some of you this morning, honestly, you fall into this category. You've been faithfully loving and serving and enduring. And you've been striving to do what God has called you to do. But as you look around, you get discouraged. And you sometimes wonder, is it worth it? And to you this morning, Christ says, remain faithful. Cling to it. Hold to it. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Cling to what you know is right to do. See, what we have to understand, one of the questions I asked this week, I'll put it like this, one of the questions I asked this week is how could this church that was had so many things right tolerate this sin? And what I want you to, us to understand this morning is that sin and error and immorality and false teaching, it's sneaky. It's sneaky, it, it's seductive, it, sometimes it 
it's masked as something else and we allow it to come in and then we then realize, you know what, this isn't what I thought it was. I read a story from an article in 1987 edition of Time magazine about a family in Brazil. This family in Brazil is about mainly about this six-year-old girl and her father. And her father one day came home with a canister of blue powder. And in this canister of blue powder, he had purchased it from a junk dealer. And it kind of caught his eye because this powder was kind of this sparkly, it was this beautiful, had kind of this beautiful blue glow to it. And he brought it home and his daughter, six-year-old daughter, got into it and began rubbing it all over her skin. And she loved how it kind of sparkled on her skin. So she would rub it on her and kind of twirl around as six-year-olds do sometimes. And she loved how it sparkled and she loved how it glowed and she just kind of played in it and put it on her. And then she sat down to eat lunch. Loving the way that blue powder made her look. But she was unaware that she was ingesting this blue powder. They didn't know that this canister of blue powder had come from a cancer treatment hospital. And was filled with, I think it's pronounced cesium-137, which is a deadly radioactive powder. And so this beautiful sparkling blue substance... That this girl was putting on her and loved the way it glowed and loved the way it sparkled ended up taking her life. It's a true story. And you can imagine the, the anguish in the family and in the community and the people close by. But it's a reminder that sometimes things look attractive and sparkly and glowy, if that's a word. But we fail to see that it's deadly. And sometimes things, from a corporate standpoint, things can kind of sneak into a church that looks glamorous and looks appealing and looks attractive. But if we really knew where it came from and what it was, we would see that this is deadly. And in our individual lives, we have to understand that what Satan does is not tempt us with things that are horrible looking. But that he comes to us with things that are like this blue powder that's glowing and sparkling and seems attractive and seems harmless. But as soon as we put it into our lives, we understand that this is deadly and this destroys. See, error is seductive. Temptation is tempting because we're tempted by it. Like that circular reasoning. I mean, the reason why we give in to temptation is because we all have weaknesses. I mean, if, if temptation wasn't tempting, then none of us would ever have to worry about it. But we see this blue powder everyday life, and we say, you know what, I think that might be nice. And we start to get it, and we start to rub it on us, and we like the way it looks, and how it sparkles, and how it glows. And all along, Satan's back there looking at us, saying, I've got them now. And some of you may be here this morning. I mean, there's three different groups of people addressed in this, in this text, in this passage this morning. One is the faithful. So the challenge to you is to remain faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. The second group is to those who are caught in the sin, to, to those who you've been putting the blue powder on you, failing to see how deadly it is. And the encouragement to you this morning is that God's giving time to repent. God is here with his arms open wide, that picture. God is here kneeling with his arms open wide saying, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to heal. I'm ready to restore. Come to me. Repent. 
So the challenge for you is to do just that. Recognize the danger and the deadliness of sin and temptation and repent. Run to God. Know that he's going to embrace you. He will accept you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. But then there's a third category. So you have the faithful. You have those who are caught in sin. But then you have kind of this middle category of people who are not the ones caught in the sin. They're not the ones guilty of the sin. But they are the ones tolerating the sin. And there's an equal Kind of this warning to you this morning as well is that it's a call to repent of your tolerance of sin. It's it's, it's a call to understand the seriousness of what other people are doing and how it spreads and how it contaminates. Don't tolerate sin in a church. Don't tolerate sin in your life. See, some of you, you've been tolerating this sin in your life and you've just kind of been sweeping it under the rug, hoping that it will get better. And Christ says, no. Just as bad as being guilty of what everybody else is guilty of is looking at it and saying, you know, it's okay. I'm not going to say anything. Confess. Repent. See, this morning, I don't know how Christ is speaking to you. But however he is, we need to respond. Will you stand with me this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to have Dana come up and she's just going to play softly on the keyboard, but As she does, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word. And you may need to pray where you are. You may need to come forward and have, I'll be down here. I'd love to pray with you, but we need to respond to him. And so if you're here this morning and you've never accepted the gift of salvation, I want you to know that God figuratively has opened up his arms and he's saying, come, repent. Salvation is offered. Forgiveness is offered. Today can be your day of salvation. Then there's others of you here who you've been saved for a long time, but you have sin in your life that you've not repented of. There's some of you who need to just say, you know what, I determined this morning to be faithful. However Christ is speaking to you, I encourage you to respond. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.